All right. Well, if you have your book, if your Bible's with you, grab them. We'll be in the book of Daniel, clearly. Seth York came and preached for us last week, and I, I said, hey, Seth, you can preach on whatever you want. You know, I trust you. Do, do whatever you want. And he texted me a week before he got here. He says, I think I'm going to do Daniel 1. It's like, ah. <laughs> Yay. And so, uh, but thankfully, uh, Seth kind of really approached it a little bit 30,000 foot view, kind of had a big picture of it and uh, really said, hey, as we approach and engage culture, we don't want to assimilate to the culture. We don't want to isolate from the culture, uh, but really engage the culture uh, faithfully. And so a little bit bigger picture. So we're going to zoom in a little bit closer in chapter one today uh, and uh, and just move right along. So Daniel chapter one is where we're going to be. So let's read the chapter together, refresh our memories, and then dive in. Daniel chapter one. Daniel the prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and pens these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of, of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed in knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are also the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshesh. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. 
Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. You know, for my whole life, I have lived uh, in a major- as the majority in, a, in our culture. I've always been a, a white, native English-speaking person, and I've been a part of the majority culture in America. A couple years ago, I took a trip to Canada and uh, with some people to meet some church planners. And on our way, we stopped to go see Niagara Falls. And as we're walking, I quickly noticed that everyone was very different than me. I really noticed quickly that there were languages being spoken around me that I could not understand. There were all uh, shapes and sizes and colors of people uh, that were different than me. There were all kinds of people from India. There were people from all over the Middle East or people from all over Africa. And I would come to find out later that we were actually in the most diverse city in all of the world. All of a sudden, I was no longer the majority. For the first time, I kind of felt out of place. For the first time, I I felt like I wasn't like at home. I felt like a minority. But that shouldn't have been the first time that I felt like a minority because spiritually, as a follower of Jesus, we are minorities in this country every day. As a Christian who lives in America, for all of American history, Christians have been the majority culture. Christians have been what has been called the moral majority the dominant force in culture. You could not have, historically, you could not have been a successful politician if you weren't a Christian. Our culture reflected Christian values. People saw America as a Christian nation, but those days are gone. And a critical look at America would probably expose that those days really weren't all that we thought that they were. We might have been a more moral nation, but not necessarily a Christian one. But it is true that Christians are no longer the dominant force in the culture. We are on the outs. Our values, our beliefs, our views are increasingly problematic and reprehensible to the world. And so often in response to this, we we think, oh, what are we going to do? Are we going to fix this? And so sometimes our response is, oh, we got to get power back. We've got to have power. If we, gr- if we regain the reins of power through politics or through influence, we will retake the moral majority and bring our Christian values back to the country. But that ship has sailed. And really we are seeing that Christianity never has and never will spread through power. Never has and it never will spread through power or force. Christianity only spreads through witness. So instead of trying to grab power at all costs, there is instead something we can learn from the story of Daniel and his friends. See, like us, Daniel and his friends are living in a society that did not share their religious or moral values. They are living in a place that saw their values and their beliefs as problematic. But yet they were called by God to be faithful in Babylon faithful as minorities in a culture who despised what they believed. Faithful in Babylon. Daniel and his friends were invaded by Babylon. Babylonian Empire, were taken as captives. And so for them, it was like this super clean break. They knew they weren't at home. They knew they were in a country not their own. 
They knew they were minorities there. They knew they were captives. But for us, for us, it has become harder to see because it has been a gradual, slow change. It's been, we, we don't realize that we're living in Babylon, a Babylon of the 21st century. That the adultery, or the idolatry, the paganism, the rejecting of our beliefs is here. And as we begin to realize that, that our true citizenship is not here, but in a kingdom that is coming, when we realize that, we change our tactics. We change our tactics from believing and thinking that, that power will save the day to learning that only a credible witness can save the day. You see, we will not win the world to Christ through power, but through a credible witness. We will never win the world through power, but through a credible, keyword, credible witness. How do we make Christianity credible in a society that wants nothing to do with our faith or the faith of our fathers? How do we make Christianity credible to the world? How do we get people to listen and take notice? We want to be clear, as we are clear in, in our core values of our church, that the gospel must be proclaimed. It must be articulated. It must be spoken. That's part of our, our mission statement. The gospel must be spoken to be understood. When we lived in a majority culture where Christianity had all the power, you could go knock on someone's door, tell them about the four spiritual laws, or go through the Romans road. They'd let you in your house, and you'd leave, and they'd get saved and come to the church next week. Now if you knock on somebody's door, they're calling the police. Or you're getting posted on the, on the neighborhood Facebook page, hey, watch out for these guys. They're coming. We don't live in a majority culture anymore. So before we, before we can proclaim the gospel, we have to earn the right to be heard. We have to earn the right to be heard. And the way, the way we earn the right to be heard is through a credible witness. And the way we live our lives before a watching world, we must earn the right to speak. You see, Christianity becomes credible to others as they see it lived out in you. Christianity becomes credible to others as they see it lived out in you. The story of Daniel and his friends shows us how spiritual credibility is earned and how it is earned over years and years and years. This morning specifically, we're going to see how it is earned in the call to be different, the call to be set apart, the call to be undefiled, or the call to be holy. The call to be holy. Israel has been invaded by Babylon. The survivors are, are taken back as prisoners and captors of war. And the king wants the best and brightest of them to come in his service. And so Daniel and his friends were picked to do that. And so now what does Daniel do? He's been picked. He's not starving on the street. He's not a slave like his brothers. Instead, he's, eating, he's offered the king's food. And all he has to do... Keep his head down. Don't make a big stink. Do what he's told. And he will have influence. He will have riches. He will have political power. And he'll be set for life. The king's man is going to teach Daniel and his friends everything they need to know about Babylonian language and customs and literature. Give him this food of the king, and it sounds like a good deal. Keep your head down, Daniel. And you'll have power and you'll have everything. 
But from Daniel's perspective, from Daniel's perspective, when he's offered this food, there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it. Daniel's moral compass tells him that this is food that would make him unholy, that it would defile him. Do you keep your head down? Do you just eat the, I mean, it's just food, right? Like, do you just eat the food so you can get the power, get the influence, get the wealth, be set for life? Or do you make a big deal about a steak? What do you do? We don't know why the food was was uh, seen as Daniel as bad. It, it probably wasn't that he was eating uh, food that was against Old Testament law. And so maybe it was that he felt that he couldn't eat lavishly while his people were slaves and starving on the street. Or, or maybe the food was sacrificed to idols and therefore he couldn't uh, eat it for that. But whatever the case may be, whatever the reason, he saw it as wrong to do. And so he has a choice to make. Does he bite his lip? Does he sear his conscience and eat the food in order uh, that he might gain power, gain influence, gain a good standing? Does he keep his head down or will he take a stand? Does he refuse to eat the food, keep his character intact, remain holy and undefiled before both God and men? You see, like Daniel, that is a choice that every one of us in this room have to make. Every one of us in this room are going to have to make it again and again and again. Are we going to Keep our head down. Are we going to do what we've got to do to get by, to get the promotion, to move forward, to get whatever? Or are we going to take a stand? It is especially hard choice to make when no one's watching. It is an especially hard choice to make when no one's watching. When no one will say anything for you to make the wrong choice. Or when no one else seems to care. Everyone else is doing it anyway. And so what do you do? Do you live in holiness? Do you set yourself apart? Do you take a stand? Or do you go with the flow? Do you do what's easy? I want to submit to you three truths this morning about us living holy lives set apart. I want to look at the risk of holiness, the reason for holiness, and the reward for holiness. So first, the risk of holiness. If you are going to take a stand, you need to understand the risk. First, let me define holiness to make sure we are on the same page on what we mean. Holiness simply means to be set apart by your moral and spiritual uprightness. It is to be set apart, to be different, to stand in contrast to the world. It is your morality, your character, your integrity, your God-honoring life that makes you different and set apart. You're doing things no one else does, particularly because of your devotion and faithfulness to God. In all times, people have been tempted to pollute uh, their holiness and their dedication and their standing for God, and today is no different. But remaining undefiled, walking in holiness always comes with risk. The risk of losing friends. It comes with the risk of losing your job. The risk of losing the promotion. The risk of offending someone. The risk of losing a family member. The risk of retribution. Standing out in holiness in a world that hates what you stand for always comes with risks. 
There was a young woman who was uh, recently married, and she was uh, working uh, uh, by herself to put her husband through seminary. They, were, they felt called to ministry, and he was going to seminary, and so she had a pretty good uh, paying job. She was a quality control manager in this plant and uh, for this pharmaceutical company. And one day, this batch of syringes comes before her desk, and uh, she noticed that the syringes had been contaminated, and they did not pass her inspection. And so she goes to her boss to report it, uh, and, and he takes that information and gets a calculator out and begins to calculate the cost of, uh, of reordering the shipment and it being delayed to where it needs to go and all of that. And as he takes a moment, uh, he, he says to her, you need to go ahead and ship the syringes anyway. Go ahead and sign off on them and ship them. And she's taken aback. She's like, has this moment of panic, this moment of crisis. What do I do? But with integrity and courage, she refuses. She says, no, I can't do that. They've been defiled. They've been contaminated. And due to government regulations, she is the only one in the entire plant who could sign off on them. And so he says, okay, and she goes home, and literally, uh, it was the weekend, and so literally the next day, the president of the company shows up at her doorstep. And he suggested that she should really think about this decision to not sign off on the syringes. Because if the paper was not signed come Monday morning, he could not guarantee that her job would be there either. What do you do? What do you do? Do you do what you know is right? Do you, do you remain undefiled? Do you take a stand? Do you have integrity? Do you do what you, uh, you know what you should do even though you're going to lose your job? That your husband's going to have to drop out of seminary? It would be easy to justify it, right? Like you could say, man, you know what? We can just make this one small thing, not a big deal, and the good that we're going to do later in life because we're going to do ministry together is going to outweigh this one little thing. It would be, you would be easy to say, you know what, my boss told me to, so I, you know, I did what he told me to. It would be easy to justify it. It would be easy to, to, to wipe over it. The question was ultimately, could they, re, could they afford to remain faithful to God and not give in to the ways of the world? Literally, could they financially afford to remain faithful to God? Was the witness of holiness worth the cost? Was the witness of holiness and integrity to do what is right worth the cost? Do you compromise your values and keep your head down so that you can reap the benefits? Or do you stand tall and do what is right and take the punishment that is coming? That is the question Daniel and his friends face and it is the question that we all face as we live in this world. Daniel and his friends decided when the food came, that they would remain faithful to God, that remaining holy was worth the risk, it was worth the cost, and they refused to eat the king's food and were prepared to suffer the consequences that might mean their heads lopped off. I wish that I could stand up here and say living a holy life always means prosperity, that it always means if you live holy that everything will go great. That's not true. It's not right. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go well for you. That's a lie. When preachers stand up and say, man, honor God, everything's going to be great. That's a lie. Jesus told us that wouldn't be the case. He told us that people will hate you and persecute you because of me. To follow Jesus, we have to count the cost. Are we really willing to sacrifice our lives, our comfort, our privilege, our property, 
for the sake of standing for the truth, for standing for what is right, for being undefiled and holy in a world that hates what we stand for. John McCain was the son of a high-ranking military officer in the Navy. He was military royalty. Yet when he went to the Naval Academy, he graduated fifth at the bottom of his class. And things were not looking well for him. And so he took a risk and he became a Navy combat combat pilot in the Vietnam War. And he was shot down. He was shot down and when he crashed, he broke both of his arms and one of his legs. And he was captured by the Vietnamese and was a prisoner of war. They gave him no medical treatment uh, and they used his broken bones to torture him. Uh, And and, uh, they beat him and all kinds of things. But then when his captors learned who he was... That he was the John McCain, the, the, the son of military royalty. They told him that, they came to him and they said, John, we will release you. We will send you home if you do one thing for us. If you tell your government how well we treated you. And don't tell them about how we didn't treat your wounds and your broken arms and legs and how we used those to torture you. Don't tell them those things. But if you tell them we treated you well, we will send you home tonight on a plane. We will let you out of this hellhole that you're in. We'll let you go home. All you got to do is one little lie. One little lie about how we treated you and you can go home. And he said no. He said no. He refused to defile himself by betraying his country and his fellow prisoners with such a lie. He remained in prison and tortured and for most of his time in solitary confinement for five and a half more years because he said no. Doing the right thing does not mean it all works out for you in the end. But that does not mean it's not the right thing to do. Doing what is right never guarantees us a good outcome. Doing what is right never guarantees that you're going to have the results that you want. Holiness is risky business. For John, it meant five more years in prison and pain and isolation. For this woman who refused to sign for the syringes, she got fired. She lost, Monday morning came around, she lost her job. And so what is it going to mean for you to keep your head up and to stand for what is right? Maybe it means you lose your job. Maybe it means you lose out on a promotion. Maybe it means you lose a family member who disowns you or a friend cuts themselves off from you. There is no telling what a holy life might cost you. And in our country, the price for holiness is, only, is like gas. It's only going up. We must not pretend that living for the Lord is always painless and easy or fun. Because while we live in a society that praises idealism, our society as it praises idealism, it rarely tolerates it when people live according to their ideals. Every one of us will be tempted to sacrifice our holiness, to obtain something. You'll be be tempted to to justify it, to lay it down, to to think it's just a little thing. I'll just, you know, do this one little bad thing in order to obtain happiness or money or status or power or something. Sacrifice your holiness to obtain them is just as defiling as the food Nebuchadnezzar offered Daniel and his friends. All of these pressures and temptations are normal for the Christian life. This isn't new. These things are normal. And they should be expected that when we pursue holiness, these things, are, these temptations are coming. And if we don't acknowledge it 
on the front end, if we don't acknowledge that taking a stand is going to come with a risk, we will not be ready for it or prepared for the challenges when they come. So there are risks to holiness, but there is also a reason for holiness. There's a reason for holiness. Sometimes it is easy to make excuses for smaller infractions today, believing that they are inconsequential enough not to matter, and that when the bigger trials come tomorrow, when the bigger trials come tomorrow, you'll be ready to fight those, right? So we say, you know what, this little thing, I'm going to make an excuse for, I'm going to get over, I'm going to do it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be ready for the bigger trial that comes tomorrow. I'm going to fail the little one, but I'll be ready for the bigger one. We think that, right? That cannot be further from the truth. You see, the smaller battlegrounds of holiness today are preparing us for the much larger spiritual battles that lie ahead. The, the smaller battlegrounds of holiness today, the, the little things, the things that don't seem that important, the things that maybe seem trivial, the things like eating food, are preparing us, are giving us the tools we need for a much larger spiritual battle, for a greater trial that is lying ahead. See, the issue over the food is not the first challenge to holiness that Daniel and his friends will face. It's not the last one that they'll face. They're going to be tempted and tried again and again and again, with the with temptations getting bigger and the stakes getting higher every time. Sometimes when we face these challenges, these temptations, uh, the, the, to, to ab- uh, abandon our holiness over small things, we're tempted to think, that God has abandoned me, or why has he tested me? Why is God giving me this little, this doesn't matter, it's just so small. Why has he given me this little test? Why is he putting me in a situation where I'm going to have to risk something over this small little thing? Why is God doing that to me? But instead of seeing that negatively, we should see it positively. God is actually preparing you. He is preparing us for greater future work. He is preparing you with these small trials now for greater trials that lie ahead. God has given you the experience and the strength to face these smaller things so that later you will be wise enough and have already experienced it and strong enough that you will face the the bigger tests. So what happens when you fail the smaller tests now? What happens when you fail the smaller tests now? Well, you grow calloused. Think of the calluses on your hands. You know the first time that you picked up a shovel or a rake and you went out to shovel the driveway or rake up some leaves or do some kind of manual labor? It didn't take long for you to look at your hands and them to be red and hurting. And and, and maybe if you push through it, maybe begin to bleed. And the next few days, your hands are tender and sensitive. But what happens a few days later as they heal? That you grow calluses. And that every time you go pick up another shovel, pick up another rake, your hands get stronger and stronger and stronger, harder so that the rake doesn't hurt them anymore. And while that may be a good thing for your hands to grow hard so that you can work, it is a terrible thing for your heart. It is a terrible thing for your heart to grow calloused and hard against the things you've refused to take a stand for. When you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, your heart grows hard and calloused. And so the next time you're faced with a choice to do the right thing, it becomes a little easier to avoid doing it. And the next time, it's even easier to avoid doing it. And the longer you go 
the easier it becomes to make excuses, to justify, and to fail to live for God as you ought to. Because like your hands with the rake, your heart has become hard and no longer hurts or feels the weight or the prick of the thing you know you ought to do. And so you just skim over it and keep moving on. You want to know how it is people make the big mistakes in life? Like how it is they make the big colossal failure that you look at and go, how in the world did this person do this? How in the world would they do, like this, you want to know how they make the big failures in life? They failed all the small tests leading up. They failed all the little things that led up to it. They failed to be undefiled. They failed to be holy in the small things. And they grew so calloused that when the big thing came, that they said, I would never do something like that. That when it finally came, their heart was so hard that it was actually fairly easy to do that big thing. Because they failed every stepping stone along the way. And it was easy to fail. You see, careless ethics early in life lead to greater compromises and worse consequences later in life. Careless ethics early in life lead to greater compromise and worse consequences later. If the deceit or the failure, however small it seemed, works the first time, right? Like if you get away with it, if you do the thing and no one calls you out on it, no one says anything about it, no Christian brother says, man, you shouldn't have done that or you should have done this, you get away with it then it becomes easier. It sets a precedent in your life. It sets a precedent. And you keep doing it again and again. Don't fail the small tests. Don't fail the little things. Because they are God's work in your life, preparing you for greater, bigger trials that lie ahead. He's preparing you now so those big things don't overwhelm you. And so when the Spirit tugs on you, when the Spirit points something out to you, when God calls you, when you know this is right or this is wrong, do that thing, don't do that thing, listen to him, obey, do it. Because he's preparing you and he's training you now for something greater and bigger ahead so that it won't overwhelm you. Not only is God preparing us, but he's protecting us too. You see, the small failures of holiness, they lead to little consequences or consequences that aren't very obvious sometimes, right? The little failures, we might not feel the consequences of those actions. The consequences are too small or subtle, so they don't really bother us or we get over them very quickly. But the consequences later in life for the bigger failures will destroy your life. And God is protecting you from those things by training you now so that you can face those things when they come. And giving you the experience and the strength to fight these smaller things, these trials, God is protecting you from these greater consequences later. God protects us from greater harm by giving us the opportunities to learn how to depend on him now. So the later trials and temptations don't overwhelm us. Learn to depend on him now. Listen to him now. Obey him now. So that you can later. Don't Don't fall prey to the lie that says, I can fail this. I cannot have to do this little thing, and I'll I'll do the big thing later. You won't. Don't believe that delusion that says, I'll serve the Lord better later. Don't believe the delusion that says, I'll serve the Lord better tomorrow. Because no, you won't. 
if you are not preparing for tomorrow's battles with holiness today, you will not be spiritually strong enough to stand for the Lord later. Today's trials are the training ground for tomorrow's battles. So holiness comes with risks, but it also comes with reasons. And finally, it comes with a reward, the reward for holiness. The reward for holiness. So Daniel and his friends, they strike up this deal with the king's servant. They say, hey, look, we get your head is on the line here. We get that if we're all scrawny and stuff, that the king's going to lop your head off. So give us 10 days. Give us 10 days, and we're only going to eat vegetables uh, and only drink water. Right? And then compare us to everyone else, see how it works. This wouldn't have worked for me because there's really no vegetables I like. Like, I'd have been like, y'all got some green beans? I like some green beans all week, right? But you only eat vegetables, you only drink water, and compare us to see how we look compared to everyone else. So they go on this vegan diet for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, they are fatter, and they look better than all the other students, all the other youths that have been training for the king. Through their obedience and through their holiness, God preserved and protected them. Because had they looked malnourished, the king would have lopped their heads off. Not only were they physically better than everyone else, but the text then says that King Nebuchadnezzar found them to be ten times better, smarter, wiser than all of the other wise men in his court, all of the other magicians in his court. They, these guys, were given the spiritual gifts of, of, of interpreting dreams, of wisdom, of discernment. And the king saw them to be ten times better than everyone else. God preserves the welfare of these men who are faithful to him. But I think there's another principle at work here. Our wisdom is inevitably tied to our piety. Our wisdom is inevitably tied to our piety, to our holiness. You see, pious or holy living and spiritual discernment and wisdom are inseparable things. You want to be a wise person, a wise person is found in a holy person. Wisdom is found in those who have stood up for the truth, for what is right. Wisdom is found in those who have risked much for the sake of what is doing, doing what is right. But when you are someone who is always living in the grays, who is always justifying or excusing poor morals, wisdom will be lacking. Wisdom grows as holiness endures. See, God grants wisdom and protection to those who stand up for him. God is more, more than capable of protecting us. The woman who, who took a stand and did not sign for those contaminated syringes was fired. She lost her job. But you know what happened? The company who was supposed to receive the shipment of syringes inquired as to the delay. Why was the shipment delayed? Why didn't it come on time? And they discovered that this woman tried to protect them from receiving bad syringes. And the company hired her and increased her pay. God is able to protect and reward his people. But it doesn't always work out that way. He's able to do it. And sometimes it works out that way. But it doesn't always work out that way on this side of heaven. Even Daniel and his friends, who are rewarded with both health and wisdom, they're still in exile. They're still captives. They're not free to go home. Their people are still outside suffering and they're enslaved. 
Their people are forced to bow down to foreign gods and idols. And never in their lifetime will Daniel and his friends ever see their homeland again. And so God grants them visions. God grants Daniel later in his life visions. And they're only filled with predictions of the suffering of his people for generations and generations. So while there may be some preserving and protecting us from the consequences of our stand for holiness, the true reward does not always come on this side of heaven. Sometimes we risk holiness now and things go really bad for us. We risk holiness and we lose everything. We lose relationships, we lose jobs, we go to prison, we we lose it all. But we must remember that there's a greater reality than this one. There's a greater reality than the one we face like right now. This life is not the end of all things, nor is this existence the bulk of our life, but this existence is but the blink of an eye. And we have rewards coming after a resurrection that will not compare to the sufferings of this present world. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Are the eternal rewards real enough for you to outweigh the earthly risks? Are the eternal rewards real enough for you to outweigh the earthly risks? I joke with people all the time who are laboring at our church, who give so much of their time to come up here and do things. I'll be like, hey, you just earned a little bit more money in heaven, a little bit more treasure in heaven. You know, they'll say, hey, when are you going to increase my pay? I'll say, we increase it in heaven. You'll get it later. But there is yet another reward for holiness. There's another reward for holiness risked and lived out in a world that hates it. Daniel's holiness stands at odds with the culture around him. But the fact that he would risk position, he would risk privilege, and he would risk life itself to do what he believed was right, to do good, to value his relationship with God above all else. Well, why would someone do that? Is that not the question people will be forced to ask? Is that not the question the watching world will be forced to ask? Why in the world would you risk so much for something so small? Why would you risk your job for one signature? Why would you risk prolonged captivity for one lie? Why would you risk death over a plate of food? It must be that the God Daniel serves, the God you and I serve, really is something to behold. It must be that you, because you are willing to risk all of this, that the God you serve and the promises he makes must be amazing. They must be out of this world. They must be something else. For why else would you risk so much? It must be that your God is so great and worth it all. Daniel's stand for his God amidst amidst earthly risk is a witness to the incomparable blessings of the grace and love of God. By being willing to risk everything else for his God, Daniel shows us just how precious God is to him. And people take notice. And when you take a stand, when you live a holy life, others will take notice too. By preserving Daniel and his friends, God was preserving much more than just those individuals. 
by God preserving Daniel and his friends, God was also preserving a nation. Preserving the nation of Israel. Because one day, not long from then, God would send a Savior through that nation, through those people. A Savior that wouldn't just risk his life by being different, wouldn't just risk his life for holiness, but would give his life for holiness. And his life, Jesus' life was given for Daniel and his friends and was given for you and for me. Jesus risked his life for a purpose, and that purpose was for the reward of saving you and I. Do you know the preciousness of that saving love of Jesus? Do you know the joy of knowing the grace that Jesus offers? Do you delight and revel in and find your uh, joy in Jesus? Has his love changed you? If so, Live for him. Show the world what they're missing by not conforming your life to match the world, but conforming your life to match Jesus's. Because the more you look like him, the less you will look like the world. And the more you look like the world, the more you don't look like the world, the more the world will notice. While we may be looking for some great plan to transform our culture, When we're looking for power to transform the world, it won't come through power. It won't come through great influence. It won't come through getting the right people elected. You know, every time some some celebrity becomes a Christian, we think, yes, now people will listen because Kanye is a Christian. Now people will listen because Hannah Montana, what's her real name? Miley Cyrus is a Christian. She's not. But that never changes people. That never changes people. Getting, getting this person or that person elected isn't going to change people's hearts. Culture changes. People changes. The world will change through the power of simple piety and holiness. The way we make a difference as minorities in a culture turned from God is to honor God. To live holy, dedicated lives, witnessing to his marvelous grace. When you risk holiness in a world that hates what you stand for, people will take notice. And then you can tell them, what on earth, or more accurately, what in heaven compelled you to risk so much for so little? Well, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us, uh, your people called by your name, grant us the, the strength of conviction the strength of heart to stand up when trials come. When that trial is really small, and it's so small that there will be no consequences for not standing. It's so small that no one will notice we don't stand. It's so small that no one's going to get on to us for not standing. Help us to stand when no one's watching and no one cares. But we know it's the right thing to do. Help us stand. Help us risk it so that weeks or months or years later when the next test come and people will take notice, people will see, there will be consequences, that we won't blink, we won't hesitate, we'll know exactly what we should do, we'll know exactly the potential cost, and we'll stand unwavering on the truth and on what is right and on what is good. 
And Father, when we do that, would you go before us and soften people's hearts that they would see, open their eyes that they would see and begin to wonder and ask, why would you risk this $50,000 promotion for something so small? Why would you give this up? Help them to see that it's because our God is greater than anything else this world could offer us. And our service to him is first, it is foremost, it is first, it is last, it is always. If you are here this morning and you cannot pass those tests because you don't belong to Jesus, you can't pass those tests because you don't know the goodness and the joy that Jesus offers. This morning, I'm going to stand right over here on the left. I'll be saying, come and let me show you how Jesus will bring you and make you his and how you can know joy and how it will change your life. And if you're here this morning and you need to pray because you're facing a test, you can see it coming or maybe you're in the middle of it or you failed one, you need to own that. Like, that's the first step, right? Like, like you failed the test, you got to own that you failed it to soften your heart a little bit. you got to remove the calluses by owning it to confessing it and asking for forgiveness. Let's come, let's do that together this morning. If you're in the middle of it, you need pray, prayer for strength. Let me pray for you this morning. If you just need to stand and sing, sing louder about God's faithfulness and his love toward you. God, give us the strength to respond the way we need to. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. Stand together.